Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, June the 6th, 2019. This is episode 2452 of the Survival Podcast. We're calling today's episode Setting Up a Secondary Property, or a Bug-Out Location. I actually like the term secondary property better than a bug-out location. Why? Well, because a bug-out location limits one's viewpoint of what the property can be. Though, that is more or less the type of property we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the somewhat remote property, the rural property, the hunting property, the cabin, the getaway property, the place on the river out in the sticks, something like that. Um, and we should probably talk about how bug-out properties could also be something that maybe you're airbnb in and be in a town or a city somewhere. But we're not going to do that today. Maybe we'll talk about that in the future, because I think that's a valid component of survival planning in the modern way as well. There is something to be said for having a place at least off the main road and uh, having the things that come with it and uh, some of the challenges that come along with it as well. I've actually gotten quite quite a few emails lately about this subject, and I realize it's been like, oh God, about a thousand episodes, almost it seems. I actually looked it up; it's more like four hundred, uh, four or five hundred, uh, but that we've really dug deep into this topic. So it's time to do it again, definitely. But I got one recently that really kicked it on, and it was just basically, hey, I went and bought this remote property. Now what? And a litany of questions. And I'm like, we've talked about all this stuff before, but I have to remember we've done it over 11 years. And just because I talked about something four or five times doesn't mean everybody listening has heard that. Or even the people that have don't want to hear about it again and hear new takes on it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, before we do... Let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors today. Sponsor day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. RidgeWallet is just a great way to minimize your life and protect your identity. They're an awesome company with an awesome product. Uh, I use my Ridge Wallet every day. I was not an easy convert, but they wanted to sponsor the show, and I liked what they were all about. So I had them send me a couple of them and took all my stuff out of my giant billfold, put it in my Ridge Wallet, and what didn't fit, put it on the shelf and said, I'm going to do this for a month and see how I feel about it. And I've never looked back. I've never looked back. Ridge Wallet is what I carry now all the time. It's a great way to live that modern survival lifestyle. Check them out today, RidgeWallet.com. Remember, they do a discount for MSB members. Next up today, JM Bullion. Guys, I have been teaching 5% to 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold as a wealth assurance program since I got on the air. Since June of 2008, I have not changed that recommendation. I never will. I'm also the guy that says don't do it all in one go. Take your time. Do it over time. Build up that wealth portfolio along the way and have that hard, tangible, hold-it-in-your-hand asset that you can hand down to your future generations or if the shit hits the fan literally or just for you, you have that backup security of that wealth. But here's the deal about silver and gold. The reason I recommend it is it's always had a history of being used as money. It's never been worth zero. And if you buy, you know, known quality coinage or bars or what have you, it's all the same. That's the whole point. A silver eagle is a silver eagle is a silver eagle is a silver eagle. 
you can go down to the store and they're going to give you the same money for any one of them. Now, that means don't overpay. So deal with a company that has great pricing. That's JM Bullion. That means don't overpay on your shipping. Deal with a company that has free shipping. That's JM Bullion. That means save even more money. So get a discount if you're a supporting member of this show. That's JM Bullion. And deal with a company when, in spite of all of that, in spite of better pricing than some of the biggest metal houses that are out there, that if you do have a problem, ever have a problem, email me. I'll email the president, and it'll get taken care of. That's what JM Bullion has brought to our uh, program for like six years now. And I don't ever see them not being a customer they, or not being a sponsor in the future. They are great. We send them a lot of business, and they take care of you guys. Check them out today, jambullion.com. Again, discount for MSB members. All right, before we dig into today's topic, um, I did want to really quick uh, just throw in a little pitch here for the MeWe platform. Again, I, I started playing with this thing like a year ago, and I just really never – kind of took it to the next level and continued to rely on Facebook because I have such a large presence there. Uh, in the past two weeks, the effort that I've put into building things up there has made a huge difference. And we have active, useful, tangible conversations and people helping each other going on on MeWe. It is a totally different experience than Facebook. If you're tired of being a commodity instead of a customer... If you're tired of being a product instead of somebody that's valued as a customer, get off Facebook and try MeWe. At least try it. Join us, if nothing else, for MeWe Mondays. We ran our first MeWe Monday yesterday. It was awesome. Uh, I did some cool stuff with people on MeWe today. We even set up a new MeWe group for tips and tricks on how to use MeWe and get past that learning curve. So friend me up on MeWe, and if you want to know anything about it, let me know. I'll, I'll tie you into the groups that are available there. And uh, I'm trying to accept the friend requests as quickly as they're coming in, but they're coming in really fast. And uh, it might take you, you know, a week to figure out the things that are a little bit different. But I think when you do, if you've been a Facebook user up till now, you will find that uh, it's really actually a better platform, and it's delivered in a much better way. It's just a little different, and it's worth the effort to learn those differences. Um, if you are a person that has basically given up on Facebook and just thought, I'm tired of this shit, and they start, you know, the, the waste book phenomenon or what have you, um, check MeWe out. I think you might be pleasantly surprised. If you're not a social media user, I understand. Uh, I'm just going to tell you that there's a lot of relationships being formed, local groups being formed, activity going on, encouragement uh, in, in, in pursuits. I'm learning a lot from people that I didn't even know that I knew because I'm actually seeing their stuff now. Uh, one gal's doing some really amazing stuff with foraging wild crops. Uh, she's putting all her videos on MeWe a couple a day. You know, she's done them over the years. I've never seen anything from her. She's followed me for years. And all of a sudden, I'm on MeWe, and I actually see my contacts and what they're posting instead of the crap Mark Zuckerberg wants me to see so that I will be active and he can sell advertising. And it is, it is just a different experience, so please consider it. All right, with that, let's get into this uh, main topic today. Um, again, bug-out locations are secondary, um, secondary properties. The reason I like this is, I'll just tell you a story. A lot of you guys know who Glenn Tate is. Well, actually, I know who Glenn Tate is. You know the author name, Glenn Tate. Uh, but Glenn, the real Glenn Tate, the actual man behind the name, because that's a pen name, um, was on our forum in the very early years of the Survival Podcast as a moderator. In fact, he got a lot of material 
um, toward the 299-day series from our forum and co-moderators and from the show itself. That's why we're actually written into the series. Um, and he, the, the, if you've read the books, then you know what I'm talking about. If not, in the books, there's a cabin uh, that they retreat to during uh, the giant shit at the fan that the whole story's about. Well, the cabin's a real place. And the cabin was inherited, um, but it did have some cost to it. I don't remember the exact details um, about it. But <laughs> when, when that happened, he had discovered the entire world of prepping, started to use prepping language, and his wife um, was not on board. And that's in the story, and there's a lot of truth in that, too. And... So he was on the forum saying, like, how do I sell this? And I'm like, it's a vacation cabin. Rich, yuppie lawyers have vacation cabins. They don't have bug-out locations. Why do you care what it's called? You know, and, like, he wanted to put some solar on it. And he's like, you know, she's really against this because of prepping. Stop calling it prepping. Say it's to help the Mother Earth. Just don't fight it. And I think that if we take the, the concept of remote properties, and we look at them as vacation cabins, recreational properties, hunting properties, then all of a sudden maybe people that we wouldn't have buy-in from, we have buy-in. And if you're married, that's important. You do not want to be in a singular pursuit in a marriage. It doesn't work. It is a, it is a complete and total merger. There will always be things about each other that are different, um, and different goals to a degree, but the overall overriding life goals need to be in concert with each other or it's a recipe for problems. So I just like the term secondary property. Like I said, though, we're not going to really talk about um, a, a property would be more like, let's say there's, a, there's some cool little towns in Texas that people see as tourist towns, and, but they're, they're not in San Antonio or Dallas or Houston, and they're a little bit away from that. Those could be fine bug-out locations, and you get somebody else to pay for them on Airbnb if you do it right. And that means that if something goes haywire in your life, and let's say you had to give up the property you live in now, you have a place to go. That would be one way to look at it. Or maybe you just shut it down for a month and you go live there while you deal with the fact that your house was flooded. So when we think of bug-out properties, we, we do get a little bit too much, and I mentioned 299 days, of the, the prepper fictionology world in, in our minds. And I think that can lead to some poor decisions. Because then all of a sudden we start deciding there's only like five places on the planet that are safe. They're all in novels. So we're all going to go there. And, well, wait a minute, that seems like a problem. You know, and the reality is... The type of things that are written about in prepper fiction are possible but not probable. And far more a limited breakdown in certain components in certain areas of the country is far more likely. If you, if you want to see what a country in economic distress looks like, look at Argentina. Still functioning, lots of problems and lots of danger. And there might come a time when you choose to fall back. And that's another way that I look at this. So let's talk about why we would want a remote property. One is a fallback location. And instead of a bug-out location, think of a fallback location. When I was in the military, we were always trained that if we had an objective and something went haywire, we had to pull back, there was a fallback location to reorganize and regroup and figure out what you're going to do next. And that's really what a bug-out property is 
if it's ever used for the purpose of quote unquote bugging out. Um, in the history of the United States, it hasn't been the case that you would bug out to the forest and stay there for 10 years while society rebuilds itself. That's never been a thing. It hasn't, and it probably won't. Again, I can never rule it out entirely. But there could be a time for various reasons that you would need to fall back. Again, a fire, a flood, tornado, uh, economic distress. If we have a very low-cost or even paid-off fallback location and we end up in economic catastrophe, everything we plan for uh, comes and then some, and we really end up in a place where we just can't afford to keep the place that we're currently in, we have an option. Next one is recreation. And this is, I think, this should be a part of what you're doing. Weekend getaways, a hunting property, a place to go fishing, a place to go shoot guns with your kids, uh, a place that you, the family can just go and shut off the devices and shut off the televisions and actually listen to the sounds of nature and relax. And I think that that all of a sudden takes the, the reluctant spouse and makes her the agreeable spouse. She might even start having some ideas about where you should look. And then next is investment. If nothing goes wrong, if you end up being an old man someday and you realize like where I live now is where I'm going to die. And you decide that there is no one that, that that's in your your lineage to to, to hand it down to as as a uh, inheritance. Well, it can then be sold and used to help fund your final retirement. And real estate is one of the best investments we can make, or it can be sent down as an investment into inheritance. Whether that means that your heirs might sell it after you're gone and use it to do something they want to do. Or if they might keep it, it might become multi-generational and become an incredibly valuable family asset. Um, one of my old friends was very fond of the phrase, they ain't making any more dirt. Now, I know we can build topsoil. That's not he, what he was talking about. When he said they ain't making any more dirt. What he meant was there is a specific land area available to buy property on. And every time a piece of property is purchased and taken out of that pool of availability, it's not coming back. And so, it, because it's fundamentally limited and valuable from a standpoint of usefulness, real property is a good investment. Let's talk about some things I think makes a property uh, desirable. And it doesn't mean it has to have it initially, but we better be thinking about it. And if it's not there, we better be taking off how much we're willing to spend per acre, let's say, if we're talking about raw land. Uh, and if it's there, we better be expecting that we're probably going to be paying a premium versus it not being there. And if it's there and we can still get the property at a low price, now we're really on to something. So it's good to just have this in mind. Number one is water availability. Now, there's a lot of different ways that can happen, but if you are in an off-grid property and you have no surface water, okay, Even if you put a well in, it's a significant amount of energy that it takes to pump water out of the ground with a well. And you can say all you want about putting a hand pump in, but I'm telling you, carrying water gets old fast. So water availability. We need to be looking at what is the current water availability on the property. And surface water can be a solution. It might not be. We need, And we're going to talk more about some of these as we go through what we're going to call additional considerations today about how to actually develop the property. So we're starting out with just going in. We're looking for this. 
Next up, access to and on the property. So what I mean by that is, what does it take to get there? And the more accessible the property is, the more desirable it is. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, Jack, if it's right off I-95, um, it's incredibly accessible. It probably doesn't make a good bug, you know, bug out location. No, I understand that. That's not what I mean. What I mean is you can get there. You can get there without getting out of your vehicle and turning in the 4x4 hubs. It's more accessible than you can get there, but you need to get out and turn in the 4x4 hubs, the 4 low, and you need 4x4 to get there. So the more accessible it is as far as a vehicle being able to get there, the more desirable it is. I, I know that seems counter to what you might be thinking. Well, I'll be up in the sticks. And I, well, there is a mirror. You know, when we think about things going wrong, one of the things you might need is an ambulance, for example. Even if you're out in the sticks, somebody somewhere can get there. Um, and the ability for someone to render aid to you is something that should be considered. Not necessarily be made your number one priority, but at least should be considered. Additionally, um, a lot of people have like a beefed up four-wheel drive truck. Uh, but a lot of people that have those also have like a passenger car or a, you know, a more uh, street-level SUV or something like that. So that means only one of your vehicles can get there. Trust me, there might be a time when you want them both to be able to get there. Again, I'm not saying this rules it out. I'm just saying access to the property itself is important. Um, and then once you're on the property, what is the access to the property itself? This doesn't necessarily mean that there has to be roads or paths in the property already, but the terrain of the property itself will determine how uh, much access you're going to have. It will determine um, how expensive it will be to create access. Steeper properties are harder to create access on. If you have a property that has a low-lying area that's basically a swamp, you know access with a vehicle in that area is going to be difficult, if not impossible, at least parts of the year. So we need to really think about, like, yeah, I got X amount of acres, but how much of it can I truly access? If you have heavy scrub brush, you know, let's say 10-, 15-year-old regrowth with a lot of vines and briars and stuff in it, do not underestimate. Do not underestimate the amount of work it requires to clear that stuff. I mean, anything short of a, a bulldozer or like um, you know, uh, uh, an excavator with a graver or something like that, it is amazing how much it takes to clear out an area, let's say 10 by 10, the size of a small bedroom. Um, you can cut trees down really fast, cutting them up, bucking them, etc. And then the more of your scrub and the more slash you're dealing with, the more work it is. So property that can at least have the access on it developed relatively inexpensively is more desirable than if not. Um, from, a, from a financial standpoint, you might have a different opinion, but money-wise, that's something to think about. Um, and then the next is structure. A property with an existing structure, as long as it, it, you know, as long as remodeling this structure doesn't involve a can of gas and a match, okay? Because there are structures like, yeah, 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 that's gonna, that's gonna need some gasoline and a, and a match. Or, mm, yeah, that's gonna need, phew, that's got metal in it and it's really like an old single wide trailer that's full of rats and stinks and cat pee. I, that's actually worse because I can't just get rid of it with fire, so it's going to need to be like 
hauled away and there's an expense. And I've seen the, the property next to me had that problem, right? And, and, and the people that eventually bought it that are building there now had to put a significant amount of money just into getting that crap out of there. Uh, in spite of burning an awful lot of what was left behind by the previous property owner, there were two, no, three single wides that had to be towed away. And I'm sure that wasn't cheap. There was half a backhoe. Why the hell there was half a backhoe, I don't know, but there was. That had to be gotten rid of. So when we look at structure, yes, structure is valuable, but is the structure usable or refurbishable, or are we just going to need to get rid of it? And it might, it's actually more of a problem. But the other thing we need to look at when we look at structures, sometimes maybe the structure does need a match. But if the structure is sitting on a foundation and there's you know already power to that that foundation, so we can just get rid of that building and now use the power that's there, things like that. Like, did that structure cause the property to be developed in a significantly beneficial way? Then it still has value even though it has to go away. But if you want to think about what well, we just decided, the top of the list, making the property desirable, those that are students of permaculture, and specifically Jeff Lawton, you will have recognized it. Water, access, structure. And that is the permaculture lens of evaluating a property The reason it's at the top of the list is it will forever be, until someone gives me a better lens to look through, how I will first evaluate any property. Next, uh, distance from where you are. And I believe there is a sweet spot. In most places, within two to three hours of drive time, you can be somewhere that's, even if you are highly densely populated, that's not highly densely populated. And I think for this type of property we're talking about today anyway, you don't want high-density population. You don't even want where I'm at right now. You don't want urban-rural fringe. You want rural, true rural property. And the reason I say two to three hours is your sweet spot is it's important that if you're going to do this, you're not just doing it in case the zombie apocalypse happens. And even if that's what you're doing, you're going to have time to develop the property. And what I've learned by maintaining a property that was almost six hours away is every time you go there, it is an ordeal. It is a chore. It is a disruption to your life. Now, if you are a single young man, it probably doesn't matter. You know, if you're a single guy and the, the only thing that relies on you is a dog that travels well is just going to go with you and keep you company, yeah. If you got a family, if you got an existing homestead, if you got things that need to be taken care of, leaving your property for three to four days is a pain in the ass. And it usually requires having to have somebody watch over it and things like that. If you have a wife, you're coordinating with her so that she can get off of work, etc. You got kids, it's a whole other layer of coordination. The reason two hours, and I think two hours is beautiful, but I'll go up to three, but two is ideal. It's far enough to be away and truly be somewhere else. It's far enough that you can get out of the way of probably anything that's affecting you where you live. It's close enough that if you had to live there remotely while rebuilding or something like that, you could probably make some you know, some arrangements with your employer uh, to do at least some of your work remotely and things like that under the situation. Um, but it is, it is also close enough that this is a possibility. Saturday morning, I'm going to wake up. I am going to get up nice and early at the ass crack of dawn. I am going to roll out of my house about 6 a.m. or 0600 for you prior service military types like me. By 8 o'clock, I'll be on my property. I'm going to spend about four to six hours there recreating or working or both. 
so that means that around noon to one or two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm going to pack everything up, put it away. I'm going to hop my happy ass in my car. And by four or five o'clock, I will be home. I'm going to tell you, you can do that when the property's four hours away. You're not going to. And if you do, it will flat wear you out. The, the, what I just described could be done with a dog being left at home, and if it's a younger dog with a good bladder and a good butt, you won't even come home with a mess on the floor. You can do that and still get home in time to take care of the, the garden if you have anything that's not automated. In translation is you'll use it. Um, when you get a new gun, you want to take your son out shooting. and it's something you can take off on a Sunday and be home early enough to put everybody to bed, get ready for school, and work the next day. Two hours hits that beautifully. And I have yet to see a place where you can't find something in, in the, you know, the way of getting out of Dodge, so to say, within two hours. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be in the middle of Coeur you know, the, 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 what is that, that Salmon River Valley in, in Idaho or whatever near Coeur d'Alene. Uh, or something like that. I understand that not you're not going to get out in the Bob Marshall Wilderness in two hours from most places. I get it. What I'm saying is, if you are realistic and you are not trying to be a doomsday prepper uh, and get on a reality show, within two hours of just about anywhere in this country, if you're strategic, you can probably find a place that gives you this type of a property. All right. Next is grid power. And we're going to talk about being off-grid today. And there's some good about being off-grid. One of the good things about being off-grid is the power goes out, you don't give a shit, and you don't have an electric bill. But nothing makes your life easier than being able to move into a place and flip a switch and stuff comes on. So grid power is one of the best assets a property can have. It is also one of the things that takes a property and puts a big premium on it. And so I am a big fan of, of, of Sean Mills. That's why I asked him about a year ago to join the Expert Council, and he's given us some great service in that capacity. And I agree completely with Sean. You can get 100% return on a, on a solar-powered system in one day if the following is true. If the property plus the cost of the solar system all in is less than the price of an equivalent property on-grid, You just got a 100% return off your investment. I completely agree, but it is seldom the case that you have anywhere near the capability with a solar array that you do with the grid power in total capability. So where you live has a lot to do with this. Are you trying to air condition a house or are you trying to air condition a shed? Right? And, and how much air conditioning do you need? So... I believe that just about anybody in almost any environment with the right construction techniques can have as much power as they need from solar, but it may not be as much power as they want. And it's just something to be cognizant of. I also think it is a great idea for wherever you're going to go, I don't care what the, uh, the, the, the prepper porn books say, to be near at least one small town. And I would define a small town as a place that you can go get reasonable supplies and groceries and stuff like that. I have seen some places that are called small towns on a map. They're basically an intersection with one little podunk convenience store that looks like it's about to fall apart. And uh, there really isn't anything. And maybe that store does or does not have gasoline. That is not what I mean. I mean something that 
You know, there's at least two places to fill the gas tank with, because that way you're not going to get completely robbed. And when all of a sudden you realize, you know what, I should have brought five more two-by-fours. It's not almost going home to get five more two-by-fours or waiting till next time. So some sort of a small town with some level of resources that are available. Um, that is really more valuable than all the prepper books say. Next is security, having a location that's relatively secure, and I don't think the value of good neighbors can be overstated. We maintained a remote property in Arkansas for almost 10 years. And the only reason we were able to do that is I had neighbors up there that would plumb shoot your ass if you broke into my house while I wasn't there. That's what made it doable. Um, they were neighbors that you never saw unless you needed to, but when you weren't there, boy, they kept an eye on your place. And if anything looked, didn't look right, they picked up the phone and called, Hey, Jack, um, I... Just notice, and I was, and it would, I mean, this guy Scott would be like, you know, I just noticed this. It looks like maybe somebody might have been up on your porch or something. I'm not sure if they got in the house. Is it okay if I go up? Yeah, it's okay. Go. And he looks in the window and goes, everything looks good. Doors locked. Everything's fine. You know, having that was incredibly valuable. Having neighbors that didn't care if you shot in your backyard as long as you were responsible was great. I remember when we found that property, I was standing out in the back looking at, at everything, and I was standing there with this real estate agent, and I hear, and somebody shoot a 20. You can tell, it's, like a, it's, a, it's a 10 22. I mean, you can tell that's what it is. It's a very distinctive style when they don't shoot at you, right? Like the paraphrasing the movie. And uh, I look at this agent's face, and I see it kind of like cringe, like, Okay, well, how is this? Go and I was thinking, man, well, you've been looking at like property with me for two days, right? You should know that I'm happy about this. Because immediately I'm like, you know, if they can do that, I can do that. It's not be a problem. So I think it's really great to have good neighbors and neighbors that fit with what you want to be able to do in your area. And last but not least, and I think to me this is imperative for this type of property, No restrictions or incredibly limited restrictions. Um, and no restrictions that prevent you from doing what you want to do. I see no good reason to go through all this crap to develop a property that's a recreational property, be told you can't own a chicken or you need to have somebody approve a fence or a shed or something like that. The county has to give you a permit to put it in a 10 by 10 tough shed that can be dropped off the back of a truck. Like, that shit don't fly with me. I'm sorry, no, 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 no. And I've had people tell me you can't find property like that where I'm looking, and I'm like, look somewhere else. Somewhere in that sweet spot radius around you, you can find something with limited to no restrictions, and certainly no property owners, homeowners associations, nothing like that. It absolutely can be done, and I encourage you to try to do it if you're going to walk this path. Now, let's, let's talk about some considerations once we've found this property. As I said, the, the easier the access for you, the, the better and the more desirable it is. But you may find something that requires a little bit of additional uh, access. My property in Arkansas had uh, about a couple miles of the, the, uh, the last bit coming off of the main road was, was a gravel dirt road. And it was pretty rough. 
but my little Jetta had no problem getting up there. There were some times when it, the road needed a little maintenance, and until it got it, it was a little dicey here and there. But it, overall, on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, I could drive my my Jetta up and down that road anytime I wanted to. However, um, my Jetta certainly wasn't going to haul anything up or down that road. It wasn't even going to pull like a little trailer that it would have been capable of pulling on a road. So vehicle requirement uh, of being able to not just access the property but develop the property. So if you start thinking, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, well, do you have what you need to get that material in and out of that property be able to do that? Do you have a, a vehicle capable of it? And let's say you decide, I'm going to, well, hell, I'm just going to do it. Right. My big old four-wheel drive and my Roken motorcycle, and I'll just do it. I don't care what Jack says. Okay, fine. Um, you still, if you're going to develop a property like that, you got to get stuff to the property. And let me tell you what I've learned living here. There is a hell of a lot of convenience to being able to go to Lowe's or HomeDepot.com and say, I want 40 of these boards and two boxes of those screws and 15 center blocks and uh, five gallons of this stain and whatever. And when you look at all that shit and you look at your, and I have an F-350 and I look at my truck and go, man, that's, I really can't haul all that at one shot anyway. And be able to go 50 bucks and you'll come here with a truck and a little forklift and put it wherever I tell you to. Buddy, you just got yourself 50 bucks. So there is, when we're looking at vehicle requirements, what I'm really talking about is in development, can you get materials to the location? Uh, that is incredibly important to be considered when we're, when we're looking at actually developing the property. And so if we're going to develop a property and there's some limits to that, we need to think going in. Now, once we have a property, I think the number one thing that most of us want for that property is some level of housing requirement or a housing option. And we're going to talk about some different ones here, but I want to start out with let's talk about choosing a location, especially if this is going to be a permanent structure. And this is important even if we're going to go like the RV route or something like that. Um, most people, when they think about putting a structure on a property for a house, a cabin, what have you, they immediately think to the highest location on the property. Why? We get a great view. Now, I'm not saying not to do that because, well, somebody can see you, because that's not what we're talking about today. If you're there, somebody will know you're there. I promise you. I don't care where, I don't care if you're in the middle of the Nevada desert, somebody will know you're there. People know where Area 51 is. Keep that in mind. The problem is we talked about water, and water is one of the things that we really got to think about how we're going to get get it to our, our our dwelling. And if we go to the highest location on the property, then using any sort of groundwater along with gravity flow to move water to the prop to the structure is not possible anymore. Now we need a mechanical energy based means to move that water. On the other side, if we put a, uh, if we have some terrain on a property, a fairly large property, and we put it on the absolute lowest part of the property, then we have more substantial potential for flood risk and more difficulty in a lot of our daily activities as well. So, to me, the kind of the sweet spot for location of a structure, relative to all of the it depends that go with it, 
is somewhere around 60 to 70% of the way up to the higher part of the property where access is easy and where a foundation can easily go. And so that's, you know, there's a lot of things that would change that, but that's kind of where you're aiming for. And when we start looking at housing, let's go through some of the things and some pros and cons of them. The easiest thing to do is an RV of some sort, whether it's a trailer, a fifth wheel, a pop-up, anything. The easiest thing to do is an RV. Um, RVs are really good for what they're good for. And I know some of y'all live in them and all, and that's fine, but what they're really good for is camping and having a hell of a lot of a better experience than being in a tent. They're also good because as long as you have some way to power them and to keep them full of water and you know whatever you're going to need to do, um, they bring all the creature comforts. Creature comforts are cool. I'm actually going to talk about the value of creature comforts in a second. But generally, you got a, you got a refrigerator, you got a stove, you got a couch, you got a table, you got a bed, you got an air conditioner, you got a heater. You got a way to power electronic devices so you can keep your phone working so you can call for help if you need it. Uh, if you're doing this with kids, they can watch a DVD at night or whatever, right? Um, so th there is a lot of value to that. Um, towing them sucks. It really does. I know some of you might be like professional drivers for a living, and, and so to you it, it doesn't. But for most people who don't spend most of their time towing a small house behind them, towing sucks. Uh, depending on the property itself, access in and out can be complicated. They are an additional expense. They make that two-hour trip into a three-hour trip in a lot of ways. So... There, it's if, if your plan is I'm going to take it with me when I go and bring it back when I come back, there's there's more work involved. That's going to reduce how much you're willing to use the property. They suck from a energy standpoint. They are Coke cans. They will literally boil you without air conditioning in the summer, and you can freeze to death with them, even with some supplemental heat in the winter. They suck. For that, and you can try to, to you can put a blanket on it or whatever. And they make these thermal blankets that are actually like foil based and all, and they help, but they still suck. In in minimum, if I was going to rely on this during the summer, I would have a concrete pad that I can back that sucker onto with a canopy over it that shades it, and I'd want it to be significantly larger than the RV itself. So that on one side, the other, or both, or all four, right? I have outdoor living space, basically, and I'm keeping the sun from beating down on it. And without that, I'm probably not doing it. I am a former RV owner. I expect, it could change, but I really expect, based on my experience of being an RV owner, to be a former RV owner for the rest of my life, yes. Uh, I don't ever see myself being a second-time RV owner, I can't remember the comedian. It might have been Bill Ingvall, but one of the comedians had a deal with RVs, and he said it stands for Ruins Vacations. I don't feel that bad about them. I'm just saying be careful. The guy that spent the last email that kind of kicked this one into gear and got the show done said they're thinking about buying a, a pop-up camper and staying in it until they can afford to build a steel building. Yeah. Um, my late friend Hal Dodd bought a pop-up camper. And two months later, he got rid of it. And this was a normal thing for him. He was a master of eBay and Craigslist. 
He would go buy shit, use it until it bored him, and then sell it for more than he paid for it and basically get to use it uh, for free or earn a little bit of money while he was using it. So, But still, with a pop-up camper, I was like, how, what, what, why'd you get rid of it so fast? He said, well, my wife and I went camping with it once, and after setting it up and staying in it and putting it away... I decided it was either get rid of the pop-up camper or just keep it sitting here on my property not doing anything useful or try to use it again and get a divorce. So I decided to get rid of it. I said, pal, that sounds like a plan. So that's my opinion of pop-up campers. Uh, if I'm going to use an RV, they don't you don't spend that much less money buying a pop-up than you do a decent RV, and I would go with an RV. A steel building... On a, on a platform is a great solution. You can insulate them. Uh, they can be, you know, basically like a barn-dominium type thing. Uh, you can, the, the, a steel building that looks like a barn on the outside can look like a, a New York City condo on the inside. It's all up to you. Uh, they're extremely durable. They're going to last, you know, not forever, but unless hit with like a significant tornado, they're going to last forever as far as your human lifetime is concerned. So there's a lot of value to steel buildings. Prefab sheds, they cost a lot less. They can be put up in a day. And I think they're one of the better ways to go for this. You cannot, until you've tried other options, underestimate the value of a hard wall structure on a property. Over the years, I have interviewed a lot of people who have taken this step and used many different ways to get there, and all of them say the same thing especially if you're going to homestead this place and actually instead of using it as a bug out location, because this should be valuable for you guys too, uh, you're going to move there and live there, you need a hard wall structure ASAP. It changes everything. And they even make inexpensive for a smaller one um, foam insulation kits you can do yourself. Um, and a, an insulated tough shed, you know, like a 12 by 12 or 12 by 16, especially 12 by 16 with a loft, you got a sleeping loft in it. All of a sudden, you got a little house, and you're talking investments under five grand, even with some moderate improvements made to them. And again, you're talking about a structure that can be installed by a professional very, very quickly. Usually, they give you it's like a a three percent greater less. They don't charge you anything to do a site prep. They just come in and set it up and go. Um, that being on concrete or a center block basement is preferable than just sitting on the ground. But sitting on the ground is preferable to sleeping in a tent or a pop-up camper or an RV, in my opinion. The downside. Now I have something for two-legged rats to mess around with when I'm not there. Now there's an attractive thing on the property to attract the attention of people. Where if I have just an RV-based property and the RV goes away when I go away, if somebody comes around, there really ain't a lot there for them to mess with. And I could probably hide what I do live behind pretty well. So that's, you know, from a security standpoint. And any structure that's permanent is going to fall into that. Uh, Aircrete, we had a show about that recently. I think they are a fine way to build a structure. When I really look at it, the concept that it's quick to build, it is quick to build compared to what, a cordwood house? It is quick to build compared to a earth ship? Yeah, I mean, it's quick to build against alternative housing that it would compete with. But, I mean, I think you're still, for even a, you know, anything that's significant enough to, to be a decent little structure, you're talking about, well, you're moving there for a month to build this thing. 
There's no air creep people that can come in and spray one in for you in a weekend and take care of it for you when it's just there like a prefab shed or something like that. I think AirCrete is a really great idea as a project-based development of a property if you have the time to invest in it. Um, things like cob houses, concrete domes, all of that stuff is... I think all those things fit better for the homesteader than the remote property. Unless you're just one of these people like... If you're a snowbird type person, I'm going to buy a place in Michigan that's going to be this, and then I'm going to live in Florida in the winter. And so when I go up to, to my Michigan remote property, I'm going to start out with an RV, and in one season I'm going to sell it because I won't need it anymore, or I'm going to turn it into a storage shed, and I'm going to have my Air Creek Dome home in the Michigan woods, and I'm going to move back and forth, and I'm going to be there for four or five months at a time. Okay, yeah. But if you're going to like have a place two or three hours away from your house, And you think you're going to build an aircrete dome house in your spare time? It's probably not going to happen, especially since it'll be your first one. So I'm not exactly enamored with that. Something that's more like a poured wall structure, you can get somebody to do for you. It's expensive, but I mean, it's bulletproof, right? I mean, literally. Not completely, but to a degree, it's bulletproof. Um, and then there's, you know, building a true purpose built small house, tiny houses, all those things. But I think that. You really need to think about your overall comfort and the longevity and value of the investment that you're making. Because a lot of things that people think are saving the money really are not. Let's go RV versus a fairly large tough shed structure. Again, as long as we can skin the security issue. Okay? So let's say that I'm going to do a fairly big uh, tough shed. And I'm going to like finish the walls a little bit. I'm going to put some furniture in it. I'm going to actually put... 8,000 bucks into this thing, including from the total cost from picking out my options at, at a box store, uh, installation costs, and the things I'm going to do it to myself. I got eight grand into it. And let's say, well, I can get myself a nice little RV for $4,000. You are flat behind with that RV, unless you're going to leave it there. And then maybe you still are, because somebody might steal it while you're not there. And, and this is why. How much more gas will you spend every time you haul that damn thing out there? How much does it cost to fix something on it when it breaks? And let me tell you with RVs, the answer is it's expensive. Um, how much less will you use the property because you have to drag your house with you when you go? You see what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot to be said for the concept of just it's there. Think about it like owning a boat where you rent a slip versus owning a boat that you tow on a trailer. I promise you, if you own a boat that sits in a slip on a lake, you know, and it's not one of these giant McYachts that they have on these lakes in Texas that have no business being on a lake, they should be out in blue water. Uh, but it's just a fishing boat, and it's on a, you know, you just, you just pull up, and you out. You will use it more. You'll use it more because it's less of a pain in the ass. And so, to me, kind of the best low cost option is the tough shed type option. Um, Next, let's think about drinking water, showers, toilets, etc. One of the things I love, just absolutely love about a structure is a structure has a roof with a filtration system and some poly tanks, IBCs, whatever. It is relatively easy for anybody to put in water catchment enough that you have water. And we can filter that water, and we have drinking water, and we can slow sand filter it, and it's plenty good for taking showers and baths and cooking and stuff like that. 
So I think that if you don't have a well or you don't have city, county water, what have you, that roof catch is probably your fastest, most expedient method of making sure that you have water available on the property. If you can put in surface water upgrade and have a way to move that down to the house, that's even better. Uh, that can be set up with really low-tech automation to do irrigation for long-term perennial crops. That's something to really look for as well. Toilet. Probably the biggest hole or lack thereof in the tough shed arrangement on a property where you don't have septic system, you don't have grid uh, water, is toilet. Probably the easiest solution to that is a composting toilet. Uh, there's a lot of options when it comes to doing that. There's the old-fashioned outhouse. It works. Um, but your wife may not be as on board with it as you are. And I, I want you to think, about, you know, where do you live? And, you know, I can have an outhouse, no problem. Do you, you want to go into an outhouse at 4 o'clock in the afternoon in North Texas? Do you really? I mean, 110 degrees and things are kind of percolating below you. You see what I'm saying? Um, a good composting toilet solution is probably the best thing. There's a lot of options there, and I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and do half an hour on selecting a composting toilet. Before I did an outhouse, if I had a truly remote property, I would do the old drop it in a hole and kick the dirt on top of it thing, at least initially until I got something set up. It's just easier. And there's, a, there's some other things to think about. When you build an outhouse, it's one thing to go old school, homesteader, outhouse. Like, you know, my dad grew up in a house that he remembers when they put a bathroom in the house. They had an outhouse for, you know, the bigger part of his childhood, he, he had an outhouse. So people are going in and out of the outhouse every day and stuff like that. You have an outhouse that sits there while you're not there. Um, bugs, things like black widows, scorpions, snakes, etc. It's kind of an ideal location for them. I mean, where I live here, if you get a place that's relatively cool compared to the surrounding area, dark and damp, and leave it long enough, guess what's in there when you turn it over later or go look into it later? A black widow. I mean, we ha I mean, I have like a, a, a thriving population of black and brown widow spiders here, and I don't worry about them that much because they don't really bother anything. They're, they're no more prone to bite than any other spider, and most people go through their entire life without ever being bit by a spider, but it's a serious consequence if you or specifically your kids are bit by a spider. That is something to think about in a lot of parts of the country. You put in an outhouse, you, are, you put up Black Widow Hotel. I'm just saying it's kind of the, especially the right time of year. So you're going to, like, you don't want the 140-degree outhouse, right, baking in the sun. So you're going to put it in the shade somewhere, so it's cool. It's going to be damp in there. You're not going to be able to seal it up. You wouldn't want to. You, in some parts of the country, I mean, you've just rang the bell for the Airbnb for Black Widows and snakes. So it's just something to think about if you have kids. Um, so composting toilet would be the way to go as far as I'm concerned. Fencing. Somebody asked on uh, MeWe today about how to, how to do fencing on the cheap. Fencing ain't cheap. Period. It's not. Uh, the least expensive way is probably using like horse or goat fence. It's pretty cheap by the foot. And, and drop it in T-posts and using trees wherever you don't have to use T-posts. Uh, that, that's probably the cheapest way. You know, you can, you can roll it out, stretch it, tack it to a tree. Problem is trees do keep growing. Eventually that has a problem, but it works. And any fence, the, what you have to understand is any fence in a property like this, since we're probably not keeping livestock, 
keeps out honest people. That's really the purpose for it when you're not there, to keep honest people out. And it will do a pretty good job of that. It also kind of identifies to dishonest people there's something here, so making it not maybe as visible as possible is a good idea. But like I said, the idea that you're going to have a place like we're talking about and no one's going to know about it is, 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 is not really feasible. Unless we're doing something like an underground house or something like that. It could be done. We're not really going there today. Maybe we'll do a show on that, how to build the complete incognito uh, living arrangements in the future, because that would be a show in of itself. But I would tell you what, to me, would be the biggest value if I had a remote property with fencing on it and a gate. And it's exactly why I'm very happy that my fence will be re rebuilt tomorrow. My dogs. If I have a property like this, I might not be taking them all with me. Max is so old, he just it's just miserable for him to travel now. But it, I could see if I was, let's say that I had a property like this now within two hours of here, and I was going to go out and spend a Saturday and, and, and come back Sunday morning, and Dorothy wasn't going to come with me. I was going to go out and just uh, maybe shoot my guns, work on a project, maybe just, I don't know, maybe deer hunt, maybe fish, whatever. I'm going to probably load Charlie and or Lucy up with me and take them with me. Um. I mean, it's a good experience for a man and his dog, right? Be able to get up in the middle of the night because the dog has to go take a dump or pee and just open the door and let the dog out is something that you take for granted until you can't do it. And even though I have a relevant problem in my life right now that forbids me from doing that because some idiot took out my fence, um, I would have included that exact line and exact line of thought whether that had just recently happened to me or not. I'm telling you, this is something I've always placed priority on. When we live, and because it leads to the way to think about this a little bit differently. When we lived in Arkansas, fencing my five acres was not only cost prohibitive, it didn't really make sense. It had been more work to maintain the fence lines in the forest than it would have been worth to have the fence. But, Being able to put my dogs out was also valuable. So we selected an area. For us, on that property, we had a nice flat area uh, on the back side of the house with a deck. And we had that fenced in. And we did that with four-by-fours, cemented into the ground, and basically horse fencing and an ice gate. And it wasn't a huge area, but it was big enough that we could put the dogs out there. They had a doghouse they could go in. There's even a picture floating around of me somewhere sitting in the doghouse with the dogs. It was a really nice doghouse, right? Double wall insulated doghouse. And that made our lives better. That made it, you know, sometimes dogs have kind of a dog problem, you know? Like, they're going to they're gonna not do well if you leave them in the house and you're gone for four hours. You're going to come home to a mess. Um, you know, if we had dogs in that situation, when we left the house, we just leave them outside. If we were going away for, you know, a day, we could just leave the dogs out and have the neighbors come by and feed them and water them and not really worry about it. So that kind of confined fence. The other thing it does for you people with kids, once kids are big enough to not be constantly supervised, but you really don't want them wandering off yet, it's a natural kid barrier, right? Doesn't mean they can't get out of it, but they know they're not supposed to and they get in trouble if they go. So, yeah, you can go out, but stay in the fence for now. It also has, an, because of all of that, it has a very significant value to the mind of a prospective owner. And I don't care if it's your main residence, a uh, Airbnb rental house, a uh, second Airbnb rental house, a remote property, a farm. 
anything you do to a property, you should be thinking about how it affects your ability to resell that property, what it does to the value and the desirability to move it quickly. There is no place where somebody comes and looks at a property and goes, damn, they have a fence. I don't want a fence. That's not what happens. People go, man, fences are expensive. I'm glad there's a fence there. So I think one of the biggest things you should do if you have a remote property, if you if it doesn't make sense to fence the whole thing, is figure out what can be fenced and include. So most optimum, this is not what we did in Arkansas because the land, lay of the land and just didn't work. Optimum is the house is perimeter fenced. This is like the best thing that you can do. Because beware of dog signs are a deterrent even when nobody sees anybody there and nobody sees a dog. And now they get to the house, I got to go through the fence. It also sets up a situation where if somebody actually does go into the house, does enter the property, um, is even like up on the lawn, the back porch, or something like that, and you happen to catch them, well, then you know that person isn't supposed to be there and they can't claim I was just asking if you wanted to go to church or something. Right? So there's that too. When you are there, it takes very little effort to train dogs, and I've trained dogs my whole life, and if you come here, you'll learn real quick, if you don't listen to what you're told, that this is true. A dog in a perimeter fence, when someone tries to get in that fence that is not welcome, is a different animal, even if that dog is generally accepting of people. You are not coming through my gate or over my fence on this property when my dogs are out there without getting bit. And I don't feel bad about that. I have signage that tells you that. And if I'm in a remote property, and let's say somebody's been stalking that property, and I have dogs that travel with me, having those dogs as a security mechanism is incredibly valuable to me as well. So with fencing... Um, Again, I think horse fencing type arrangement is probably your least expensive that actually keeps things in. One of the things you have to look at with fencing like that is those dogs are very capable of pushing under fence like that. So you need to think about how to anchor it so that that's not possible. But that's probably the, the cheapest thing you can do. You know, whatever height you want and some, some uh, fasteners and utilize trees. You can clear out areas and... Then you have to put in posts where you have to. And that's that's the best solution that I have for quick and efficient fencing. Uh, next, I really think that if you're going to go off-grid, you go straight to owning a generator or two. And so even if we're going to build solar, wind, I don't care if you think you're going to create geothermal or nuclear power with a lightsaber on your roof or hydroelectric, I don't care. If you're going to be off-grid, you should have a generator. And if you're not going to be off-grid, you should have a generator that goes with you when you go to your property. Because when you, and I've, you know, again, living in properties like this in the past, there were times, and we weren't that far from Hot Springs where I lived in Arkansas. There are 25,000 people without power. There are 13 people on the end of the line where I was. Who do you think's power always came on last? So we've been here at this property for six years. I've used my generator because I had to twice. I used it because I got impatient one more time. I probably used my generator because I really needed to in Arkansas six to seven times a year. So now let's imagine that you've driven out to your property to get work done on a Saturday. 
You just stay over Saturday night. The power just happens to go out the weekend that you're there, and it screws up your work schedule or your recreation schedule. Sucks, don't it? Where a few hundred dollar generator could have saved your ass. So I think we should all own generators anyway. It's one of my most recommended uh, prepper items. We've talked about a lot of different varieties, but definitely you want to have generators. If you're going to build a solar system, your generator's your friend. Your generator is what's filling up that battery bank when the sun's not available or the power gets low. Your generator is something you kick on whenever you need that extra power. Your generator is what takes you from having as much power as you need to usually having as much power as you could want for not a lot of money. So to me, generators and off-grid living just go together. And everybody I know that actually lives off-grid owns at least one generator. Everybody that truly does it. And most people that I know that have remote deer camps and stuff like that that are off-grid, they are always taking a generator with them. If you are going to be an RV person on a property like this and you don't have a generator, you are wrong. Um, I have different opinions on different brands of generators, but in the RV community, the champion generators are considered one of the best. Most of the RV dealers out there are also champion generator dealers, so that would be something to consider if you're going to use that. Uh, next big important thing is relying on local knowledge. Be willing to talk to people. Um, one of the person people on MeWe in the chat today when I was asking about the subject said they knew specifically not to build in certain areas on their property, even though they weren't the lowest areas, but those areas flooded anyway. So just by talking to locals, they, they built in the proper location. Local knowledge can help you with so much. You know, uh, I, I can't even begin to tell you what it can tell you because I don't know what I don't know. And I think that's the most important thing. You don't know what you don't know. So local knowledge is important, and so is local people. I already talked about good neighbors, but if you go to an area and you start talking to the people that live around the area you're thinking about buying, and they all talk to you like you are a piece of garbage, I know you can live anywhere you want to, but I don't want to live there. I don't want to live in a place where anybody that's not from there is considered not welcome. One of the great things about the place we had in Arkansas, when I, when I went up there, And, you know, so I'd heard the gunshots, and, uh, you know, I, the real estate agent saw, you know, ah, that's good. And there's a house across the street, and there's no no trespassing signs, there's no gate or nothing like that. And I walked over and knocked on the door, and she's, what the hell is going on? And a nice lady came out and said, hi, my name's Jack. And she said, what can I do for you? And I said, I'm looking at this house for sale across the street, and I just want to know what the place is like. She goes, the house? I said, no, the place. Where you? Oh, it's great up here. Where are you all from? Oh, we're from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Oh, okay. Are you going to live here? No, we were thinking about buying as a vacation property. Oh, okay. You know, and it was like immediate rapport. And and when she started saying, like, well, Scott and Lisa live up at the top of the hill, and their parents live across. Okay, so they, everybody knows everybody. And this fellow here, he lives, he's the guy at the, all the way at the end with that beautiful house up there on the hill. He's a really nice guy. Okay, I'm, I'm done. Right? As long as everything else works, like that was the, the, the key indicator that this is the right place to be. Unfortunately, they didn't say, hey, the guy down the road's an asshole. But, but the, the key was everybody up here wasn't. Like, you can't get away from all assholes. And so the fact that there's an asshole around you know, may or may not break the deal. But if everybody's an asshole because you're different, it's not where you want to be. You, you need to really think about the local knowledge and the local reception to who you are. And definitely don't, don't put off the value of creature comforts. 
I think the ability to be comfortable from a temperature standpoint, take a shower, cook a meal, be dry, and have some amount of electrical power. All of those things are really important. And to be able to use the bathroom in a decent way, all of that. That's what you really want. That doesn't mean it has to be there, but whatever your plan is, you need a plan to get there, and you need to sanity check the plan. Like, have people actually done this? Or is this something you read about in forums that everybody says you can do it, but finding people, you know, get on YouTube, look this stuff up. What does it really take? Is the cost you have in mind doable? And have a plan to get there as quickly as possible. You know, developing a property over 10 years sounds like a really good idea until you're six years into it and, and you're, you're, you're only at where you thought you would be in year, like, one. It, there, there is a case to be made for kind of having everything already there when you buy it. It might cost more, but it may not. And what do I mean by it might cost more, but it may not? It will cost more now, but the total, total cost may not cost more. The cost of doing things is going up over time. It's called inflation. And then there are certain things that a previous owner may do that might increase the value of the property, but nowhere by near the cost of doing it. This property here is a perfect example. On my property, and this is where, you know, where I live permanently, and it's not a remote property at all, but I have two steel buildings. One's about 800 square feet, and one is about 1,800 square feet. I would have estimated the cost of putting the slab, the steel, the insulation, the skylights, the bay doors, etc. of the 1,800-square-foot building at somewhere around $40,000. The 800-square-foot building, I would put somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen dollars to $20,000. That might be low. I did not pay that much for them. Somebody did. And actually, somebody paid a lot less than that for them because they did it a long time ago when they cost less to do, but they still paid a significant amount of money. Um... But if you look at what I paid for this property, it was almost like they weren't there from a standpoint of what the property appraised at. So the, the previous owner who put them in took the hit, and I got the benefit. So you do have to start really sanity checking. Like I've always said, Excel never lies. Excel is your friend as long as you don't lie to it. You need to sanity check the developmental cost of a property versus the cost of buying a developed property. And you'll find that if you get a property that has a structure that appraises as real estate on it, that has power to it, and has a sewage solution and a water solution in place, then a bank will give you money to buy it. You can get a mortgage. And I know I'm a, like the ultimate get-out-of-debt guy, but the one thing I'm really okay with leveraging debt on, especially with interest rates still as low as they are, is real property. It is a sound financial strategy of investment. And so that is something to really consider. Uh, now, here's some questions to ask yourself before you pull the trigger on this. Are there other things that I really should do in my walk first? You know, if you have a homestead and you have all these plans for your homestead, I want a garden here, I want a chicken coop, I want aquaponics, I want to do solar on my... And you, you're looking at buying a remote property, you probably should because now you're going to bifurcate that that budget and time budget for development on both properties. The easiest thing to do is develop the property that you're on. And as you do that, you'll know more about what you do or you don't want on a remote property. If you're 
if you've not saved any money for your retirement at all, it is not time to buy a bug out location. If you do not have your basic preparedness plan in place for if the personal shit is the fan in your life, you can't be okay for 90 days, you don't need to be doing this. You just don't need to be doing this. Which brings me to my next thing. It kind of ties back into it. Can you really afford it? Like, even if you have the plan in place and all, if this is going to take money that you've been saving and you're not going to have any money you can save anymore, you, you can't afford it. You need to be able to look at this as, you know, I say put 5% to 10% of your net worth in silver and gold. Let's say we're not going to put 10%, we're going to do 5%, and we're going to put 5% of our net wealth into this other property. If we can't do it with that on a cash flow basis or on a blank, you know, uh, uh, initial check basis or a time development basis, we need to really think about this. I mean, it can't derail your savings. It can't derail your retirement. It can't derail the ability to live the life that you want where you're at. It can't be something that, you know what, if I lost my job, I'd be okay for 90 to 180 days. But if I do this, I won't be. It should improve your financial situation. Now, if you can buy it for cash and you're not rating your 401k or something to do it like that, well, now it is no additional expense. And now it's an asset. Now I can sell it. Now I can move to it, and I can develop it over time. There's nothing wrong with the develop over time strategy. You just have to sanity check it with reality, or it can bite you in the ass. Um, the next is how often will I really use it. This is where my two-hour number came up. I have found properties. I've been looking for six years. Since we got here, I've been looking for a second property. Um, and every time I find something that's in that three-and-a-half-hour range, and it, the numbers work, and the property works, I sit down and I have a come-to-jack meeting with myself. And I say, Self, will you really spend enough time here that the money makes sense to go here? And my answer is always, no, I won't. No, I won't. That I mean, I would be better off renting a cabin for a weekend twice a month that I can get to easily than doing this. And if you're not going to actually use it for anything other than when the zombies come, I'm going to go there, you probably are not ready to do this. And you need to ask yourself in the end, what do I most want out of it? What do I most want out of it? If you want a getaway for fishing and hunting, then obviously that needs to be what you're looking for. For some people, the, the entire dynamic of this is different, though. For some people, it is a bug-out recreation place for now, but the plan is when I retire, especially those that are on the path for, early, you know, we'd call it early retirement, some of your 50s or even younger. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put another 20 years in at the grindstone here, but I'm being a good aunt and I'm saving my ass off. And when I'm done, that's where I'm going, then that changes the dynamic. So... Everything I've said, nothing I've said today is a hard and fast rule. Everything is dependent upon what you really are looking for. But you know how I say no, why you believe what you believe? That's one of my tenets of, of just you know good logical thought processing. You can extrapolate that to be know why you're doing what you're doing. If you want a bug-out location just because everybody thinks you should have one, it's probably not a good idea. If you want a bug-out location because you just read a book that was really scary, you probably are not ready to have one. 
If you want a bug out location because you want a place you can go deer hunting every year, fishing a few times a year, go hang out with your kids, play with your dogs, do some projects, and you live in suburbia, and that's the way it's going to be, and because you're going to live in suburbia, you want this place to live that other life, and you can make the numbers work, okay. See, that's how you have to look at this kind of secondary property location. Never act in fear. I've been teaching that for 11 years, and I don't see myself um, ever teaching it any differently other than good fear. Good fear is when you're in the road, here comes a car, you get the hell out of the road so you don't get run over. That's good fear. Good fear is somebody shoots at you, you take cover and return fire. That's good fear. When you have time to think and you're reacting with fear, you're acting like you don't have time to think. And that means you're taking your most valuable asset in that situation, the ability to make a good, solid, critical decision, and you're throwing it away. Don't do that, especially when it comes to something significant in your life. And probably nothing will have as big an impact on your life, uh, at least in many ways, as buying real property. All right, guys, with that, we've wrapped up another episode. I'd like to remind you, if uh, you want to support this show and the work that we do, please consider joining the Members Support Brigade. You can do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. And I'm telling you right now, folks, if you'll use the discounts that I offer in the MSB, your membership will pay for itself to the point where it will make you money. Uh, that's how I designed it right from day one. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about today about one of the people in my life that are a mentor that are part of how I've developed the types of programs I have with Survival Podcasts. And that leads us to our item of the day. Because the other way you can support us is what? Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. I'd like to tell you the story of, of a mentor in my life today. His name is Michael Case. And I worked with him for only about seven months at a place called Sage Telecom. He was the last person I worked for at a J-O-B type job before I formed my alliance and partnership with Neil Franklin. And we founded Franklin Spearco Media and uh, built several other companies as well together. And I often say when people say, you know, where'd you go to, uh, where'd you go to uh, college? I went to the School of Hard Knocks. I've never been to college. I've lectured at a few, but I've never been to college. Mike Case, uh, different pedigree, uh, amazing man, degree in marketing, uh, master business, uh, MBA, uh, and very very creative guy. And he was my boss when I went to work for Sage Telecom. They. It was 70 or 80-something resumes they went through to come up with a half a dozen interviews. And I walked in, and, and I was actually, um, uh, I'd worked with as a, a part of an agency uh, with a, a person that was a C-level officer at Sage. They'd gone there, and I went after them to get my business back because they left. You don't leave me. I When I'm in sales, I'll chase your ass down. So I was in marketing for this company called Masterlink, uh, I was their director of internet marketing, and uh, but I also had a, an incentive uh, contract as well, where if I brought business in, I got paid as a salesperson. Well, one of my clients let them know, so I go up and chase this this girl Jennifer Mound down, and uh, she tells me that they're looking for someone. Basically, does what I do. She puts me in touch with Michael. I give him my resume, and when I go in, you know, I've now analyzed the company as though I was going to pitch it as an agency handling what they want somebody to do as a job now. 
So I had a, a, a way of looking at that company no one else had. So I walked in and said, you know, they said, well, we need this, we need that. No, you don't need any of that. And I, I pitched it, because like, I didn't care if I got the job or not. I pitched it like they were going to be a client. And they hired me, like, just like no one else stood a chance. And I went in and did everything I said I would do in like three weeks and, and, and completely developed something they never had and set up my old company to manage their pay-per-click marketing and stuff like that. Everything was just right. And it left me alone. I had almost complete autonomy there. And I've told the story before about how I went from two days a week at home to three days a week at home. And um, the thing was, Mike took me under his wing as a protege and not so much telling me how to do my job. He didn't care what I did. Like, Oh, all the numbers are great. Everything's what you said it will be. Well, great. Let's talk about marketing in general. Let's talk about customer loyalty. Let me show you the stuff we're doing that you don't touch. And a lot of this was actually done very philosophically outside of work. We took to having beers together after work and all before I drove home. The, week, the times I was up there, I was so far from home that it made sense to go to the go have a, a go have a bite and a beer and drive home an hour later and get home at the same time. Is the way it worked out. So we spent a lot of time together, and, and he, if I went to the School of Hard Knocks, Mike Case was the professor that gave me my Ph.D., and he's come out with a book that is called Customer Devotion, Create Wildly Passionate Customers to Dramatically Grow Your Brand. Let me tell you some of the stuff this guy's done. Um, he was the guy that developed... Um, the loyalty program, the second version of it, uh, the plat platinum program for American Airlines. He's worked for Briley, uh, Briley and Partners. Uh, the foreword of this book is written by Hal Briley. If you don't know who that is, that's one thing. You know, I understand not, but if you know marketing, this is like top quality firm, large brands in the world. Um, he's developed loyalty programs for uh, La Quinta. He's developed loyalty programs. Uh, for 7-Eleven. He's developed loyalty programs for the Emerson Group. He's developed loyalty programs um, just, I mean, Neiman Marcus, right? I mean, that's who Mike Case is. And when we were working at Sage, we have to understand to really understand how brilliant this man is. We were selling local landline phone service in 2006. That was like selling black and white TVs in, let's say, 1989. And we were the only competitive local phone company that was growing its market when that company sold. And when that company sold, the people that bought it paid a premium for it because of what Mike did. And to the tune of millions of dollars. But both of us immediately said, this is not the people we want to work for. And we both went to do other things. I went to go work with Neil. I went from my last job to having a partner and building multiple companies in a month. A month into founding the first company I did with Neil, which was Franklin Spiritual Media, we, tr we, we signed the Trump Organization, as in Donald effing Trump, the President of the United States, as a client. And a lot of what I did was me and my technical know-how on the Internet, but a lot of it was the things that I learned from Mike. He now has this book, so I'm proud to make it my item of the day. And here's the good news. Um, he wants to just get out there. He's a brand-new, well-known in marketing, but brand-new author. He sells his book for $5.29 on Amazon for the first week. It's going to go up to $20 bucks after the first week. But $5 bucks and you get a copy of this book. This book 
is so good that one of his contacts is a professor at SMU Cox School of Business, which I beat up on colleges all the time. If you're going to go to business school, SMU Cox, yeah. It's already required reading for some of the, the, the programs in SMU Cox School of Business for their master's program. Um, and I built MSB a lot on things I've picked up from Mike. So I'm a small business. So this is something that works from Fortune 100 brands down to small businesses. It will change the way you think about business and marketing. If you're in business, I really recommend you pick up a copy of this book. If you have Kindle and you want the Kindle copy, for Prime members it's free. And for non-Prime members it's 99 cents this week. So I would appreciate it if you guys would pick up a copy. You can even look at it as a personal favor to me. And the other thing I would say is read it. At least read it mostly and leave an honest review because what he's really hoping to do is get some reviews and some traction with this. And again, this is a guy that didn't have to. Okay, guys, this is before you knew who I was. He didn't have to. And he came to me when that company was going to get bought out, which was only two months after I went to work there. He took me into his confidence. He protected me from not knowing that and getting hit by like a ton of bricks. So I had time to get other things done. And he took it upon himself to help teach me and take me to another level. I'm trying to pay him back a little bit, and I think it's a beneficial thing to you guys or I wouldn't do it, but I would appreciate it if you consider picking up today's item of the day, customer devotion, creating wildly passionate customers to dramatically grow your brand by Mike Case. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the show. i got a good song for the day, the day for you today. Um, it's called Outlaw You, and it's by... Shooter Jennings. Who is Shooter Jennings? Waylon Jennings' son. This song is mocking all the kind of bro country music that they play in bars and stuff now. They, 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 they've kind of tried to make Outlaw Country into a brand, which is completely the opposite of Outlaw Country. So it's good. And that's what he said. He's, he's listening to this music thing, and oh my God. But if someone made a song like that, making fun about songs like that. So that's what it is. So it's got some of that pop country sound to it. But the whole thing is mocking the crap music that they try to pass off as outlaw country. And clearly indicating that country music doesn't know what outlaw country ever really was. At least today's country musicians. Because outlaw country wasn't that you went around robbing banks. Outlaw country wasn't you spent a lot of time in prison. They might have made some songs about it or whatever, but that's not what outlaw country was. Outlaw Country wasn't about breaking the law in the way that we think of it. Outlaw Country was about breaking the unwritten law of the way you had to do things to be successful in Nashville. And Outlaw Country was where people like Waylon Jennings, people like Willie Nelson, people like that took the power away from the record companies and did things their own way. And what the record companies did eventually was decide to make a thing out of it, and now they've made it to where it doesn't mean anything anymore because they just take some guy that looks good, dress him up a certain way, and next thing he's singing a song about pickup trucks and fishing and hunting, and he doesn't know jack shit about any of it, look, Brian. Just saying. And here's the thing. We're at a time now where outlaw music in all genres should be bigger than ever because it's easier than ever for an artist to tell the, the big corporations to go screw. There's multiple platforms to deliver it. Recording it costs a fraction of what it used to. But people still buy the hype. People still buy the mass media approach. 
But it's up to us whether we choose to eat the garbage that they're choosing to feed us. I, for one, choose not to. And uh, I really dig this song and the history lesson in it. With that's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
just about where your ass about. Feel true to 